Right. Well, good morning. Again, turn with your Bible to Luke chapter 5. If you're using one of our last remaining pew Bibles, that's page 861. And we're going to kind of pick up where we've left off in this series. Just a quick recap for you. First of all, I just want to point out, I'm glad everybody stayed. Catherine, I thought she was faking a, faking a cough, and she's like, I'm not going to hear this sermon. I don't, I'm not going to fake the cough, ran out, but she's back. She's back. It's good. Um, picking up Jesus' ministry in Galilee. So just a few things to capture here as we step into Luke 5, uh, the end of Luke 5 there. Jesus has been, his ministry started. We have this story of his, of his birth. His ministry started. He's been healing people. He's been preaching. He went in the synagogues and already spoken in the synagogue. And, and so this is where we are. And now we're going to pick up here where he is just called Levi, as Zach preached last week. And I'm going to pick up in that story because I think it's relevant. If we don't pick up in that story, I think that this, the totality of this passage is going to make less sense because I'm Technically, my passage starts in verse 33, but 33 picks up in the meal. So let's start in verse um, 27. And let me just say right off the bat, I'll go ahead and give you my big truth for the, for the day. And that is, just so you can have this in your mind, put on Jesus and live. Very simple. This is our big truth. Put on Jesus and live. And so let's pick up. Amen. I appreciate that. Let's pick up right now in verse 27 of chapter 5. It reads, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. Then he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. And they said to him, I'm gonna, actually, I'm going to stop. And they said to him, but the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So, first big idea. Jesus is the model for and subject of your ministry. The model uh, for and subject of your ministry. Now, I'm just going to say right off the bat and acknowledge this, that I think a lot of people maybe grew up in a church experience where when you hear the word minister, you think of the person up here who's standing at the pulpit. And man, just what a gross misunderstanding of what ministers of the gospel are. Because while we are, I'm a minister, you you are ministers. The, the, The saints are all ministers. Everybody has ministry as an expectation in their life if you're a believer. Okay, so I, in fact, in Ephesians 4, it says that the church has been given teachers and elders and pastors to shepherd the flock to equip the saints for the work of ministry well you're you're the saints okay and so everyone right off the bat let's acknowledge you have a responsibility for ministry if you're a christian okay now not not the guy that stands at a pulpit on sunday merely you have a responsibility for ministry and that said i want to just i want to pick it up here and 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 point out a couple of, of things of what we do to equip you as the saints for the work of ministry and this is what we do two things now one of these things spurs in a thousand directions, but there are two basic things. One of them is to ensure that you have the Holy Spirit, meaning that you're a believer, because you can't do ministry in the absence of the Spirit. And the second thing is to lead you to trust that that Holy Spirit is sufficient to do the work of ministry. Against all your 
concerns and weaknesses and fears, the Holy Spirit is sufficient to carry out through you as an instrument the work of ministry. Some of you have heard me reference this song before, beautiful eulogy. They don't, they don't do much rap anymore. It's phenomenal music. The lyrics are just profound. But I think now they're all pastoring churches. Bad reason to break up the band, right? No, it's a, so it's super cool. But they had this, one of their songs is literally called Instruments of Mercy. And the, 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 the chorus of the song is, with your hands, play your song. Use my life as your instrument. And that is how ministry is carried out by the power of the Spirit. Now, I'm going to jump right ahead here because I think there are just a couple really important things that, to, to point out in this passage with regards to how to do ministry right off the bat. And I don't want to belabor this too long, but there, there has been a, a divide in the history of the church for some time about who Jesus is. Okay, and it, it's understandable. Here's been the divide. The divide is hyper-Orthodox theologians who say, who know everything and can pick apart the Trinity and break down who Jesus was, what he meant in salvation, in the history of redemptive, in redemptive, what does he mean? And then there's this camp over here that are like, Jesus, that stuff doesn't matter. He's a great teacher. We should pay attention to his teachings. And there's been this false dichotomy that's been presented. And, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. I grew up so much here that now I find myself tending to, like, swing the pendulum over here because I want people to know who Je- what he's done, not simply what he taught, okay? But there's a third category that I think we're quick to overlook, and that is Jesus as example for us to do ministry. And now I want to I temper this because I do believe there's an inappropriate way to think of how Jesus did ministry, and let's try to replicate it. So, like, an example would be, I don't think you should walk into a synagogue and, like, go ask for the scroll of Isaiah and say, can you hand me the scroll? I'm going to teach this. I don't think that would be wise. I don't think that method is wise. Um, I don't think that you should, college kids, I don't think you should, like, stand on a boat in El Tuck Cove at Horsetooth and preach to the college kids on the beach. You're welcome to. Jesus stood in the boat. He preached to the masses on the shore. Justice like, this sounds like a great idea to me. Um, you could do it. I don't think that's going to be the most effective form of ministry. They've got loudspeakers out there. They're not going to hear anything that you say anyways. Um, and they're intoxicated. So this is not the method. Jesus' methods are oftentimes not the methods we would use. Now, I want to tell you, I want to give you a quick little helpful tool that we use as a staff and and I think it'd be helpful for you just to think about your own life and ministry, okay? And it's this little triangle. And at the base of the triangle is this idea of theology, that everything that builds off of the base needs to be rooted in right theology. And all theology, that's a big word. You're going to hear me say it a couple of times. All it means essentially is a right understanding of who God is. That's the simplest way to think of it. Theology, the study of the theos, God, this is all we're talking. All it is is I want to know who he is and we, we depend on this book for that, right? On top of theology in this little triangle is philosophy. And this is the philosophy of ministry, which is how are, based on this theology, how are you going to think about what matters in terms of ministry? What matters? How will you spend your time? And then on top of that, the, the pinnacle, the peak of it is just methodology. And this is what are you going to do? And this changes all the time, right? It's a normal thing for the method, how we do ministry for that to change. In this instance that we see in Scripture right here, Jesus' methodology and his philosophy and his theology all merge in a really clear picture for us to, to emulate. And that is to eat with sinners and tell them about Jesus. This is really simple. 
But I'm telling you that this should be the root of your ministry. Now, some of you are thinking like, man, I get uncomfortable about this. And I, I want to just, I want to both affirm an understanding of that, but then also I want to challenge you, okay? So some of you know, maybe most of you don't, I, I'm a salesman. Now, literally, I'm a salesman. I never thought I would say that. I was a high school principal, and I sold ideas to faculties as a leader. And then I, we were going to help to create this computer program that's used by hundreds of schools at this point around the country. And this is what pays our bills, right? This is how we, this is how we live as we have this small business we run. And a lot of what I do is sell this stuff from this business. Like, I sell the software. But it's easy for me to sell because I believe in what it does, it's a program to basically help teachers be more effective at teaching the things that matter most for kids to succeed after they leave from high school. That's what it, what it aims to do. And I'm thinking this it contributes to human flourishing. It puts odds in kids' favors like this matters. And I feel good about it. And because I'm excited about it, I can sell it. And it's easy and it's natural for me. Similarly, I sell a lot. I get, listen, if you know me at all, I get pretty excited about things in general. Okay, like I, I'm an excitable guy. Okay. And there may be people in this room right now who are wearing Prana brand Bridger jeans like I have on right now because I sold them to you. Not physically, but because I have, these are the best jeans ever. I will buy no other jeans for the rest of my life as long as I can buy Prana, Prana Bridger jeans. I've sold ESV study Bibles in this congregation by standing up here and saying, this is the best buy. And I'm excited about it, right? And you go and you People are like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy that. When I get excited about things, I tell people about it. And Jesus is that thing and more than anything else in my life. Nobody has to convince me to tell people about Jesus. I'm not standing here to sound arrogant or hyper-spiritual. I'm simply telling you, when I finally came to understand this Jesus of the Bible, who saved me, in the midst of my rebellion, that I did nothing to pursue. I didn't choose the family I was born into. I didn't choose the church I was drugged to as a child. I didn't choose the innumerable influences that would penetrate my understanding of who God is, particularly in his word. I didn't choose any of this. And he did it, and it humbled me and made me super excited for other people to know the same thing. And I believe that people who are eager about what Jesus has done will tell people about Jesus. Now, I don't think you go stand on the stump at CSU and tell people about Jesus or, or necessarily, depending on your methodology, or stand in the boat at El Tuck Cove or go stand at the street corner at the Chick-fil-A next to the sign guy. That's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm simply suggesting is that you consider, are you eager to tell people about Jesus? Maybe you're scared because you don't know how to do it. Maybe you're like, I don't know if it's, I mean, like it's awkward to talk to people about this. It is. It's going to be super awkward. Listen, Brooke and I have had, this is, this is one area that when this changed, Brooke and I have had a very open household policy. We've had a lot of sinners in our house. We've had, and it runs the gamut, very well-kept, high-income, good-looking family sinners in our house. And we've had meth addict, homeless, pregnant women in our house for dinner. One of which, I literally met in Old Town, who said, hey, sir? Like, yeah. I'm not going to lie to you. I need five bucks. I'm not going to buy food with it. I'm going to buy weed. And she's clearly eight months pregnant. And I said, well, I'm not going to give you weed. Are you pregnant? Congratulations. I'll give you my phone number. Would you want to have dinner? Let's have you over to my house. She's 
30 minutes later, she texts me. Like, probably to see if it was real. Is this Buddy? Yep, this is Buddy. And we had her over for dinner. And she would go on to have this child, and Brooke would help her raise this child and would take her on and mentor her as a mother. Now, that's an extreme case. We met a guy at Gateway Nature area who I was just like, this guy needs to know about Jesus. I'm just watching him. He's sitting there reading something, and I can tell he's not in a good state of mind. And I talk to him. He follows us back to our house. Ten minutes into our house, this dude's doing handstands walking around my living room. Okay, and my kids, and I'm, and Brooke and I are throwing that look across each other like, what have we done? What have, what have we done? Have we messed up here? Have we gone too far? And then we've had our neighbors who have well put together lives that don't know Jesus, but they're sinners. And we've had a lot of people in our house. Now, I'm saying this because I want to lower, not elevate the expectation. You should do what Jesus did, and you should eat meals with people. And you should do what Jesus' disciples are doing in this meeting, which is sitting with sinners and telling them about Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean the first time you have a meal, you got to evangelize them. You build relationships with people over food. It's so much easier that way. And you invite them into your life and all of the discomfort that they're going to bring. That year with Amber was a burden for our family. 100% worth it. Having handstand Daniel in my living room was scary. 100% worth it. Jesus sits down with sinners and they want to kill him. So shame on me if the discomfort of having somebody who maybe isn't just like my family or smells a little different, or dresses a little different, or who has maybe totally different priorities. Shame on me. I talked to a former, a former student. I didn't share this with the first service, <clears throat> probably because I'm afraid I'm going to get emotional about it. I'm going to do my best not to. Former student from Franklin County High School who I loved when I was the principal. This, my first interaction with this kid was because on a standardized test, he bubbled in the F word and gets sent to my office, Okay. <laughs> And he comes in, and he comes in, and I'm like, dude, why not take this seriously? You're so smart. This kid's brilliant. He's brilliant. And his, at 16 years old, this kid's entire mentality was, beat the man. This is the system, and I'm going to beat the system, right? Everything about him. So I got close to this kid because that's my kind of kid, right? I'm like, let's talk. We need to spend some time together. And we did. And he, he came to my Bible study a couple times just to be critical, right? And then we got close enough that he finally, he's going through some major family stuff. Parents not in the picture, both very, very bad addicts living with a grandmother who is not totally cognitively aware of what's going on. And he would say, he texts me at 11 o'clock at night. Can I come over and talk? Come on, man. We'd sit up in the hearth room. We'd show up at 1130. And we'd sit there till 2 o'clock in the morning because he just had to unload. This kid is now, we've kept up. He's 25 years old. Just found out three months ago that he has 90% kidney failure. And he's on dialysis. And he thinks he's going to die. And he's going to be on the bottom of the kidney transplant list. Uh, kidney transplant list. And we got on a phone call together. And I'm talking to him. And we set up a deal. I'm, I'm like, make, I'm like read, let's read a book together. You read it. You tell me what you, whatever you want to read. I'll read it. But then the second book... I'm like, Lord, keep him alive to get this second book. You're going to read whatever I choose. And we know what I'm going to choose. <laughs> Romans. Right? So on this call, he, I'm talking, I'm like, how's your spiritual life, man? He's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm still agnostic. I'm like, okay. And he said, can I be honest? I really, I just, I just want five, I just want five years, and then I can die. 25. 
25 years and then I can die. And I share this because this is a, I've told this guy about Jesus a thousand times. And now he's staring down death and I feel the urgency, but here's my point. The success of your eating with sinners and telling them about Jesus and then being saved is not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to eat with them and tell them about Jesus, okay? I just want to make sure we're, we're clear so that you don't think what I'm heightening is you better start saving people. You will save zero people in your entire life. You will lead people to the understanding of who the Lord is. He will save them, okay? And that's, you do your part and he will do his. Let's, let's, let's move down. Starting in verse 33, where, where the sermon actually starts today. All right. <laughs> And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now, my next big idea is that Jesus is God. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Okay, that should be easy to remember. Um, if it's not easy to remember, check the box that says gospel on the back of the connect card there because we should probably, if you've never heard that song before. This to the Pharisees, to us, to, the, to, the, to our eyes, looks like a couple things. They're being critical because they're eating and drinking and then Jesus is going to use a wedding illustration because you, you don't fast at a wedding, you have fun at a wedding, it's a party, right? But this is a lot deeper than that, and, and we need to see the depth in this for us to really be able to understand what Jesus is saying. And I, I wanna, I wanna, I'm going to make a book recommendation. I feel like every time I preach, I end up making some book recommendation. And our church has done a study on this. It's sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus. And the illustration they give is that when, as a, as a 21st century Gentile, I hate to tell you guys, but unless you're like Jed, if you're like not an Old Testament scholar, you unfortunately lose a lot of the, the beauty and the depth of what's going on, particularly in the parables, the way that Jesus lives his life and his ministry. The Gospels come alive when you understand the Hebrew Bible better, when you understand the Old Testament better. Now, this book, Sing at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus, uses this illustration of if you're standing in a boat, if anybody's ever done this, Brooke and I have had the luxury of getting to go scuba diving and, and snorkeling before, like in Key West at the, the, the reef out there. And if you're in the boat and you're looking down, you can see the coral reef, but it's just like a blob, right? But if you snorkel and you put on your goggles in a snorkel, you can see it and you're like, wow, look at all the color. But if you scuba dive and you get down 30 feet and you're looking at it this close, you're like, oh my gosh, you can see that it's alive, right? Similarly, as a 21st century Gentile, if you're a new Christian and you open this text and you're not familiar with the Old Testament, it's almost like standing in a boat and you see a blob and you get some points, but you're not really sure what's going on. And then the more you study, the clearer things get. And then if you come to know the Old Testament better and you use the concordance in your Bible and you follow along with the notes to see, it comes, it comes alive. And in this instance, this is not a mere wedding illustration. You party at weddings because when Jesus says here at the end, the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, two things happen. Number one, they're like, what? That doesn't make sense for this wedding illustration. Number two, he is referencing Isaiah 53. Again, like Jesus tends to do. Remember, just, just a 
chapter or two before this, Jesus is in the synagogue and gets the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads Isaiah 61. Do you remember this? And he reads it to them, and then he, I love the next line. It says, then he hands the scroll back to the attendant and goes and sits down. And they're like, wait, what was that? And he said, oh, that scripture was fulfilled, and you're hearing me having read it. That's crazy. This is just as crazy to the hearers. This is just as crazy, this illustration, because he's referencing being taken away. They're going to Isaiah 53, but more importantly, when he calls himself, himself the bridegroom, he is alluding to what Jed read at the beginning in Scripture reading of Isaiah 62, the marriage between God and his people. God is the bridegroom, and God will send the bridegroom. This is salvation in Jesus Christ and God incarnate. This is the claim. This is what he's saying. I'm going to read a couple of quick things here. This is Isaiah 53. Think about taken away when he's taken away from them. It says, By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? It's Jesus. The last verse of what Jed read, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. Your sons being Israel, marry you, you being God. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Hosea chapter 2, verse 16 to 20. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant, a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. Now listen to this. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. When those Pharisees heard bridegroom, they heard a lot more than when we read it. Now, listen, I've shared with you guys before that I'm super skeptical of the supernatural, and it's been a, again, it's a piece of unbelief in my life, right, that I've wrestled with and continue to. But when I think of the supernatural in the Bible, like Peter walking on water, I do, it's like this weird paradox, because I'm like, really, he walked on water? Was it real shallow? You know, and it looked like he was walking on water. Embarrassing story. We were taking our little boat up at Glendo Reservoir a couple years ago. And it's, has anybody been to Glendo Reservoir? Okay, it's huge. We're in the middle of this thing. And our boat goes, Brr! and I'm beached. And there's, it's, a, it's 100 yards each direction of perfect of water. And it was embarrassing. And I was like, why are there no signs? Like, we can't get anybody to work. So there's no way we have time to put all the signs in of where the, uh, where the sand comes up. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Well, we have pictures of our kids out walking around on this in the middle of Glendor Reservoir. It looks like they're walking on water because it's this deep. And it's just enough that it barely covers their bottoms of their feet and they're walking around. It's the craziest looking thing. That's what I think of when I think of Peter walking on water. Like, really? Because I'm a skeptic, right? But at the same time, I think if it's real, this God is powerful, and he must be God. And that probably sounds holy. But that is like step one. Because the whole point was, he, Jesus does this, and he's basically saying, this book you love, this is about me. 
The reason Peter, he walked on water wasn't so Peter would be like, he's powerful, or even, he must be God. It's, no, 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 this whole book is about me. This is the evidence that this book is true about me. When Jesus calls himself the bridegroom, he's not simply saying, why do your people eat and drink? God is with them. When God isn't, they won't, and they'll fast. God is with them right now. Me. And what would they want to do? Well, probably kill him. Right? That's the natural response. This guy's claiming to be this. Remember, he's walking around healing. He's doing miracles. He's drawing the attention. The signs. Remember, um, Jews seek signs and Gentiles seek wisdom. He's providing wisdom. He's showing the signs. But the whole point isn't merely for them to say, he's God. It's not that, it, it, it is, but it's not that simple. It's, I am this God, this God that has been prophesied for thousands of, that 3,000-year-old book you're holding, that's about me. This, this would blow their minds, right? In this moment, it would blow their minds, and they would probably panic. And if they panicked about this, and Jesus is talking to them, and, they, they're, and first of all, just the, the question itself is funny. It's like the, the question about, you know, why are you eating with sinners wasn't good enough. And then it was like, well, why are, you, why are you eating at all? Why are you eating? They're not eating, right? Because they're, they're running out of it because Jesus is giving them wisdom, answering their rhetoric. And then he's going to jump into this parable. But guys, let me, just make this, let me just make this crystal clear. When he says this, he is not simply saying, I'm God. He is saying, I am God's promise of salvation. Because the bridegroom in Scripture isn't, is not, don't miss this, the bridegroom in Scripture isn't merely an illustration of God. It is an illustration of God's act in saving his people. The bridegroom is the bridegroom who marries his people. That's what this is an illustration of. This is an illustration of salvation in the same way that if you're married sitting here right now, your marriage is an illustration of God's salvation. It is an illustration of a covenant made to your spouse where grace abounds. Because without grace, your marriage goes real fast. Real fast. You know, I joke with Ainsley that, you know, she loves these shows with the horses and, and like, love stories. Okay, she's, you know, 16-year-old girl, loves the, the love story to happen. Like, oh, it's so sweet. That exists. And then we love The Notebook. Right? Not just because you love Ryan Reynolds. Is that his name? No, Gosling. Ryan Gosling. That's right. And, and every, every female in church is distracted. Oh, Ryan Gosling. Listen, we love The Notebook, and we love young love stories. Where are all the movies about in between? You know what they are? They're sitcoms. Because marriage is hard, and a covenant is what keeps it together. And the Lord gives us marriage that we would be able to see what he has done in salvation. That's why we have marriage. In fact, this passage about fasting, let's just talk for one second about fasting. Fasting is a way that in the absence of God, like right now, in the absence of, the, of, of his physical presence, we long for him to return and we fast again as Christians some, right? We've, we fast. Now, granted, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We don't fast out of legalistic obedience because we're supposed to. We fast as a means of reminding ourselves that we're desperate for God. As we starve ourselves of food, we become desperate for God. And can I tell you something that I think is so critical? And I say this in my Sunday school class, second hour constantly. When you start to see the basic things in your life, like eating food, 
as a mere illustration for your need for God, it will change the way you understand the God of the Bible. You did not have to be made to eat food. God could have made you perfectly internally sustainable and elected not to. Now, here's why I say it this way, and this is a profound concept that I do a, every time I feel like a really poor job of articulating. I'm going to try again. When you stop seeing how you should honor God in your food, and you start seeing that your food is intended to bring you to worship God, it changes everything. When you stop saying, I'm going to conform my marriage to biblical standards, and instead you flip it and you start saying, my very marriage exists for me to understand the love of God, it will change it. It turns it on its head, which is exactly what Jesus did. Everything that we breathe. It's your breath in my lungs. We sing this song. We didn't have to breathe. Why did he make us breathe? So that we would, every breath, realize our dependency, our involuntary dependency. So, this statement to these Pharisees was, I am God, and I am the Messiah. Let's move on. Starting in verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Now, really quick, let me explain the wineskin illustration. I think the, the garment would make sense that we don't cut up a new garment, put it on old. The wineskins, is, this is the simple point. If you put new, when you put new wine in a wineskin, which literally was made of animal skin, as it fermented, it could expand because new animal skin stretches, and it has a degree of elasticity. But when that finishes fermenting and you've used it, then if you put new wine in it, it's already maxed out its elasticity, and it will burst because it can't grow with the fermenting wine. And so the simple point being made here, we're not going to overcomplicate it, is you can't put something new into something old. It's got to be new and new. Now, this garment illustration is similar you can't take something new and put it on something old. But let's be clear about what he is really getting at here. He's getting at this idea of the covenant, right? He is trying to explain to the Pharisees, this is a new covenant. You can't take part of the new covenant and stick it on the old. And some of you have probably heard Jesus described as prophet, priest, and king. Okay, Jesus is prophet, Jesus is priest, Jesus is king. This is just three categories by which we understand Jesus' ministry and Jesus' purpose. Okay? The Pharisees, at best, may have heard what Jesus said and thought, is he another prophet? They would not have thought, is he priest and king? They would have taken a piece of what he was saying and wanted to apply it to what they had become so committed to as Pharisees. Remember, Pharisees are the people who were as legalistic as possible in following obedience to the Old Testament. Okay, that's, there's the simple version. And they would take this and say, how does this fit into what we're already doing? And this would be a tremendous mistake. Here's my, here's my illustration, and this is an illustration that is intended for me, which is a bad preaching, but I love this illustration. I'm building a 1976 Wagoneer in my garage with my boys right now, 
and into like a rock crawler, a rock crawler that will rival Ross Houck's scout that he sometimes draw, drives to church, and it will be better than his. And he's not here. I'm, you'll find saying he's in Moab right now, actually driving his because it runs. Mine's still in the garage. Now, that all said, 76 Wagoneer, we're building this thing right. We're, I mean, we've been working on it like dogs. Can you imagine if I went and bought a 2023 Wagoneer for $115,000 and then started putting some of that onto my 1976 Wagoneer, how stupid that would be? Can you imagine it? That's a, it's literally $115,000 for a new Wagoneer. And then I'm going to start piecing it out and sticking it on my old Wagoneer. We would call that foolish. We would all laugh at that. In fact, this is the one time, I, I'm not a big props guy as like a preacher. I, they distract me, and this would be distracting too, but I thought this would help make the point. If I had like a, a brand new Arc'teryx $500 jacket, and I cut off, started cutting pieces off to put it on my $20 Sin Network jacket, it would make the point here, and we would laugh, like that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen, but let me just tell you here, Christian, when he says no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on the old, we do this as Christians. We do this as unbelievers, and here's how it tends to manifest itself in our life. Take this garment illustration and follow me here. We, we will say, Jesus says, here's the new life to the fullest, complete, best life possible for you in worship and in glory. Here it is. And we say, I'll take heaven. I like that. And I'll put heaven on my old garment. But I'm, I'm not ready to give up this old garment. And then maybe, because where I think most people start, and then maybe because of that, you start coming to church some, and then you see people that seem happier than you who are going through bad things. And you think, man, they're happy. I want happiness. And you, you cut happiness off of, of your garment, of the new garment, and you, and you patch that on to the exact same life. And then, because you're in church, you start to feel more spiritual, and you see you go through a loss. You lose a child, miscarriage. You get diagnosed with cancer, you lose your job, you have a child that is in rebellion, and you start reminding yourself, well, I mean, God's in control. It feels good for me to say God's in control. So I'll, I'll take that too, God's in control. And you put it on your old garment, and then maybe best case scenario is that you get a little further down the road and you decide, you know, I want to do something so that the Lord sees value in me. I'll, I'll serve in the children's ministry. And you cut the ministry piece off of the new life and you, the new garment and you put it on your old garment. And this is what I think a lot of Christians tend to do. And I think we tend to take the new garment and we cut it up and we butcher it into whatever fits our old lifestyle. Now, let me say two. I feel like there are a couple clarifying points I want to make because this is not universally applicable. And here's what I mean. First of all, I think, I don't want you to confuse this with the normal Christian life, which is one of understanding the graces of God and things about God and the implication of those things more and more and more and more as you follow him. That's true. Okay, I, to use another illustration, a garment illustration, Brooke bought this Burton snowboard coat a couple of years ago, and 
was a nice coat. And then one day she's like, will you please put our ski passes in all of the coats? And I said, yes, we're going skiing. And I, and I opened Brooke's coat. I'm going to put it in this pocket, but as it's laying there, I noticed this little, I'd never noticed this before, this little tiny pocket with a little zipper right down on the waist. It's made to put your ski pass in so they can scan the QR, RF or whatever it is, the radio frequency code. And I was like, this is so cool. It's got a pocket for the ski pass. You don't have to like lose it when you put your gloves in and out and stuff. This is awesome. It was there the whole time. I just hadn't discovered it. And for the Christian, you will discover new graces of God for the rest of your life. New circumstance will bring about new opportunity to see a new grace of God and how it renders in your heart. And that is a normal piece of the Christian life. So don't misunderstand that when you, that if you are realizing new things about God, that you're cutting up the garment. That's not what I'm saying. But there is a huge difference than receiving what God has to offer and attaching it to your old life and repenting of your sin, recognizing that you are dead in your sin. You ought not know God. He sent his son to die on the cross for you because you can't save yourself to reconcile you to him and therefore says, here is your new way of life and it is way better and then you learning what that better looks like over the course of your life. Two different things. Now for some of you, you were saved as a kid and I feel like this, you know, I'm going to call out Justice for a second. I was having coffee or lunch with Justice one day, and, and I thought this was such a sweet thing. We were just talking about working with student ministry stuff. And if you don't know Justice, he's up here in the hat. And if you don't know Justice, you've not been around very long probably because you'll know him. And I'm talking to him, and I'm like, man, what about student ministry? What do you, what do you, what, what's your draw? What's the attraction to you to this? And he said to me, my job is to create boring testimonies for kids. And I thought, that is so profound. I want to create boring testimonies. Don't you, if you're a parent, don't you want your kids to have a boring testimony because they were well-discipled, that they don't find Jesus at, at 50? And listen, I'm coming from a guy who didn't know Jesus until I was 36 years old, 35. My brother, severe addict, delotted in his neck. Later in life, amazing testimony about what the Lord's done in his life. Amazing testimony. I'm praying that's not my kid's testimony. I'm praying at a young age, they realize I'm a sinner and I can't fix this. And Jesus was real, died for my sins, rose from the dead, and I'm going to trust that. Even if it's confusing because I'm eight, I'm going to trust it because I know I can't do it. That's what I want for my kids, right? We all want that to be true. We all want that testimony. But what happens? How does a, somebody saved as a child respond to, does your, are you patching your old life or does this look like your new life? And you're like, I don't remember my old life. I was eight. What, how do we evaluate the, the new life? And I'm going to give you a simple, what I believe is a simple way to evaluate it. Do you like to eat with sinners and tell people about Jesus? I think that's a simple evaluative tool. And if the answer is no, I don't like to talk about Jesus, you probably don't know him yet. If the answer is I desire to talk about Jesus, but I'm terrified, different story. If there's a lack of desire, you probably don't know him. And you're probably still in the old life. And if so, and you don't want to be, we should have a conversation. And listen, this isn't something you do on your own. Our church, this church literally exists to help people walk the walk of discipleship for a lifetime. That's what we exist for. We have book studies, we have Bible studies, there are ways to serve. I joked about this last service, 
But if you've worked in children's ministry at all and you read the family, if you're being honest, every one of you who has worked in children's ministry and used the family discipleship plan has at some point had a light bulb go off like, huh, I didn't know that. And you're about to teach it to five-year-olds. Right? That's it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. That's what our church exists to do, is to lead people into a deeper relationship with Jesus because they know him better. That's normal. What I'm telling you is if there's a lack of desire, that's a concern and we should talk about it. If there's a desire, invest yourself in what the church offers to come to know Jesus more clearly. Invest yourself. Take advantage of the body of wisdom and experience that exists in this building made up of nothing but sinners who have fallen at the cross. Join it. Be a part of it and see what the Lord does. Now, let's move on to this final verse. I'm going to catch right back up. Final verse here. You'll notice this kind of stands out because it doesn't make sense. In fact, scholars argue about what this means. Once we hit like textual criticism, post-enlightenment, scholars said, there's no way Luke wrote that. It doesn't make sense, which is don't ever, ever, ever fall into the ridiculous trap of postmodern textual criticism. It's stupid, first of all. It's not even like logically rational. So don't fall into it. But more importantly, if you believe he did write it, it makes perfect sense. So all of the centuries and millennia worth of confusion about this, we're going to fix it today in Overland Church, Fort Collins, Colorado. Here it goes. Here's what it says. Oh, and I don't think I ever said my previous big idea, which was simple. Jesus is the new covenant, not a patch for the old. That was my last big idea. Now we're going to move right to the next one. So verse 39, And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. So here Jesus says, Can't put new patches on old garments. Won't match, won't fit with the old. Can't put new wine in old wineskins. It'll burst. And then you expect him to say, Desire the new and give up the old. That's not what he says. That's not what he says. In fact, he says almost the opposite. No one after drinking old wine desires the new. The old's good. This is scary. It's scary for the reader. It kind of reminds me of that passage when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, many of you will come to me on that day and say, Lord, we've cast out demons in your name. We've healed in your name. And I will say to them, Jesus will say to them, Leave me, you doer of lawlessness. I never knew you. I never knew you. We were doing things in your name. Never knew you. This reminds me of that passage. And it reminds me of it because he is saying to the Pharisees what he has been saying to the Pharisees in the four Gospels all the way through. He says these things to them, and then he says, but you won't listen. When you read about the passages where, Je- where they say, Jesus, remember, this is the very first parable in the book of Luke, Okay. Later on, we will see when the the disciples say, why do you talk in parables? Jesus' answer isn't so that things become more clear for you. Jesus' answer is so that they, the Pharisees, so that they can't understand. But for you, it's been given to understand. This is theology-shattering stuff. Jesus says to the Pharisees, here's who I am. I'm the bridegroom, and the new covenant is here and go ahead and persist in the old things, because it's good. And I think this is a lesson for us as Christians. 
that we should fear that if we evaluate our life, we're not simply living in the old because it's pretty good. You live in Fort Collins, Colorado. It's famous for the coolest things on earth, mountain biking and street biking and other kinds of biking. And we have a reservoir and there's good fishing and there's the Poudre Canyon and there's Horse Tooth Rock and there's the best beer in America, all in a 10-mile radius of where we sit right now. That's crazy. This is pretty good. And I can tell you firsthand that as Brooke and I have tried to minister to our neighborhood and have people in our house over for dinner from our cul-de-sac and in our cul-de-sac with our Jambrosia party, and we try to talk to people, you know what we find more than anything else? It's honestly, it's not the Amber who's a meth addict who's pregnant. It's the pretty well-to-do family who's pretty happy and doesn't really need any Jesus because their life's pretty good. They make a quarter million dollars a year, and they're fine. And what terrifies me is that the same mentality has penetrated the church and that the church can look at their life and pretty much enjoy their life and be a, almost subconsciously a Noah, my student from Franklin County, who says, I've got five years that are good. I'm good. I've got 10, maybe 15. If I can get to retirement and we'll fill in the timeline with what will make us satisfied with what our life has been, and we live our old life. We cut out Jesus and we patch him to it. And I, more than anything, want to caution this church as it continues to grow in numbers of being a church that grows in Christian community and fails to reach the center, who, who grows in the regularity of their good present life and doesn't put it off for the, for, for the new. And let me just say this of what that, what that looks like, first of all. I want to be clear that I don't think I don't want you to hear what I'm saying and take it as an oversimplified version. Putting off the old can be really hard. It even fits the garment analogy. Right? Taking off the old can be a challenge. Um, I'm claustrophobic. I got claustrophobic when I shut myself in the back of my grandmother's van to try to scare her as a joke, and I got stuck between the van door and the back seat, and I couldn't move. And ever, literally, I was like 10 years old. Ever since then, I freak out. If I'm laying on my back, if I'm in tight spaces, whatever it is, it is so bad that I have like this cover, these like Dickies coveralls that I wear when I'm working on this Wagoneer, and the zipper sometimes gets stuck right here. It's just closed. It's just closed. I know it's closed. I can tell it to myself over and over again, but when that zipper gets stuck, my blood pressure goes up. I feel like I'm starting to sweat because I can't get the thing. I'm like, oh. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I feel like I'm a thousand degrees, and I'm going to die in this cover. That's how I feel, and I can't get the thing off, and here's my point. Sometimes putting off the old is a wrestling match, and it's uncomfortable because you have to acknowledge it, and it might make your blood pressure go up, and you might get sweaty thinking about who you are and a willingness to kill that person to live in grace. And it's hard. And when Jesus says things like, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me, I'll give you rest. We have these sweet passages about what we get after we get to Jesus. But if I can be candid with you, there is a part of the Christian's experience, and there's a part of the unconverted person who desires the new life that makes it that satan says no, no no don't do it you're fine just add some of these things to the old and jesus says no no, no. paul says it in first corinthians chapter or, uh, colossians 3 take it off put off the old self with its practices put on the new self 
And I want to answer how you do that simply and what that looks like for the Christian as we close. First, you acknowledge the bridegroom. This is God. This Jesus was a real human who lived in real time and was the fulfillment of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies over millennia. Turn to him. Number two, take off the old covenant in your life. The idolatry of self, being your own God and being an autonomous being, take it off. Your pride, what you're good at, what you do, what you offer, your ambition, take it off. Your self-righteousness, your piousness, your charity, your service, take it off. It means nothing. Take it off. Turn in faith to the bridegroom and put on grace. Put on grace. Rest in grace. And when you're wearing grace, the last thing you'll do is that you will eat and drink with sinners and tell them about Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I thank you for your word, God, and I, I thank you for your desire to make it known to me in the midst of my own personal rebellion, God, and the fact that every person you've ever saved has been a sinner. I feel like I'm the worst. I feel unworthy, and yet you've made yourself known. And God, I just, I thank you. I thank you personally in front of this congregation. God, I thank you for for pulling me out of a life that by every American standard looked perfect and saving me from prosperity and accolade and fame and wealth and instead God giving me Jesus I thank you for that Lord and I God I just beg that this congregation would experience the same thing God that if there's anyone here who's not known Jesus for who he is and what he's done, God, that he would, that there would be a step taken, the box would be checked on the connection card or a conversation after church would unfold, God, that you would do that work. Lord, I just want to lift up Overland Church in Fort Collins to be a church that lives out the mission statement we so boldly proclaim at every meeting in our Bible studies and from the pulpit, God, that we, that we, glorify God by proclaiming Jesus Christ and that that would be the reality, not merely from the pulpit, God, but at work and at school and in our cul-de-sacs, at the reservoir, on the bike trails, at the breweries. God, would you do that? Would you do that through our church and would you grow our church in number, not by gathering Christians, but by converting the lost by the power of your spirit? God, would you do that here? Lord, we love you. We thank you for your son. And we're just reminded, God, that your son died for our sins, and may he receive the reward for his suffering. In Jesus' name, amen.